Our first scripture reading is from the book of Jeremiah. As we preach through the book of Galatians, we like to have a, an opposite reading from our opposite Old Testament. So before we read um, Jeremiah 32, we'll have Heidi come and read this for us. Heidi, if you would. Jeremiah 32. Uh, now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear, fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Uh, well, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Ben. I'm uh, the pastor here at Resurrection Church, and we have been steadily working our way through, trudging through, hiking through, wandering through at times, uh, the book of Galatians. And uh, it's been good. Uh, what Paul is, is sort of on about is he's really trying to distinguish between what, what is the gospel way of salvation, how do we come to salvation through faith in Christ, versus uh, there's all these Judaizers, people who are insisting on different forms of biblical legalism. And you can see here, we're kind of arriving right at the end of his major theological argument. Next week, he really begins to move to more practical things, but sort of one last, one last uh, thrust here he's making from the Old Testament. You'll see it in a second. Before we get too deep into it, Hannah's going to come and read it for us. You can follow along in the back middle portion of your bulletin. Hannah. Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Tell me who you, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All right, we're gonna spend some time uh, reflecting on this text together. Uh, you've probably heard the taunt Who's your daddy? And now this taunt is not usually meant in the literal sense, but in a figurative way. 
uh, in baseball, Major League Baseball, Pedro Martinez, famous Red Sox pitcher. He, he once called the Yankees his daddy because he could never pitch well against them. He struggled against them. And then Yankee fans, as of course, as, as they are wont to do, taunted him forever with a who's your daddy chant uh, when he came out to pitch. And if you've seen the movie, remember the Titans, Denzel Washington, who plays the, the head coach, has this showdown with a, with a popular player where he insists before the player get on the team bus that the player acknowledge that on the football field uh, that Denzel Washington uh, was his daddy. Now, in both of those cases, and in many, many more, to be someone's daddy, that does not indicate literal parentage, but a sense of identity, a sense of ownership, a sense of power, a sense of knowing who you were. And in the Apostle Paul's day, it was very popular for the Jews to go around insisting, we are sons of Abraham. He is our daddy, so to speak. And they, in some sense, it's actually meant it literally. They're like, well, we've descended from Abraham. We can trace our ancestry all the way back. But they also meant it figuratively. They took Abraham for their head. When they wanted to express their identity, they say, this is who we are from. This is, this is our guy. And in a fascinating and brilliant twist on their self-conception, in this passage, Paul is saying, in effect, it doesn't matter who your father was, it matters who your mother was. See, Paul corrects them. He says, you can claim you were sons of Abraham uh, all you like. That's not what actually matters. And Paul is, again, not using mother in a literal sense for all the Israelites descended from Sarah, but he's using mother in a figurative and according to verse 24, an allegorical way. He's asking, which of the mothers do you belong to? Where do you get your true sense of yourself? The mother actually matters quite a bit because Abraham had two sons by two women and they had two different destinies. So it's not enough, two different destinies. It's not enough to be a son of Abraham. There are lots of sons of Abraham. Who was your mother? Now this passage, according to one commentator, is the most difficult in all of the New Testament. <laughs> so if you had trouble following it when Hannah was reading it, and you're like, what is the point he's trying to make? What are all these allusions? Well, you're just not alone, first of all. That's, that's very normal. It's, it's certainly a debated text because what Paul is doing is he's mixing a historical story with an allegory, with a modern situation, and trying to make some practical applications. To give you an idea of the complexity, imagine playing chess, but you're also riding a unicycle and carrying on an interview, and you're doing it in 10 short verses or whatever. Uh, you know, so buckle up, take a big sip of coffee or whatever is in your mug or whatever. We're going to do our best to figure out what is Paul communicating and why does it matter for us today? So I've got, I've got four sections for us this morning. The historical, the allegorical, the practical, and the last one, it doesn't rhyme or anything, but a helpful summary. And I say helpful in, in very much in faith. I hope it will be helpful to you. Uh, but we're going to begin with the historical if you look at verse 21, Paul opens with a classic rabbi, classic teacher move. He asks a question. He wants to point out there is a logical inconsistency in the position the Galatians are believing or dabbling with believing. He goes right at his opponents. He looks them in the proverbial eye and says, all right, all you guys who want to be under the law, have you actually listened to everything the law says? And the implicit assumption, the implicit meaning here is they have not. <laughs> they have not read it all. They have not really understood it. If they had, they would not want to be under the law. The law contradicts them. Now, even in this question, we, are, we have a bit of a conundrum. Because Paul does not move from there to a discussion of the law per se. He moves to a story from Genesis. 
Now, all throughout Galatians, most of the time so far, when Paul has talked about the law, he's quoted commands, like laws, real laws. And, but here he reminds them of a story. So is the, law, is the story part of the law? Um, the answer to that is yes and no, which isn't really helpful, but it's no because uh, no commandments are given in the stories of Abraham. Uh, there, there are lessons to be learned, there's a covenant to be given, there are promises made, all that stuff, uh, but there are no explicit commands given to God's people. The law, like the, the strict law, comes hundreds of years later. So the answer is no in that sense. But yes, because I think Paul is using law in a broader sense here. All of the first five books of the Bible, which is in Paul's head here, they form an identity for God's people. They can all generally be thought of as the law, like the capital L law altogether. So Abraham's story here might not have any commandments in it, but I does think it helps the Israelites understand who they are. To listen to the law in Paul's mind, then, is to listen to the entirety of, of the books of Moses, the five, first five books of the Bible. So we might summarize verse 21 to say, those who want to be under the law should just listen to the whole Old Testament before they decide they want to be under the law. And so we come to this historical story, and I'll review it quickly, because I don't want to make any assumptions about how much you do or do not know about the women being referenced here. So Genesis 15, if you want to go look it up, there's this account where God makes a covenant with Abraham. God says, I'm going to give you descendants, as many as the stars. Go count the stars, see if you can do that. Go count all the sand and all the seashores. I'm going to give you that many descendants. And I'm also going to give you land for them. And as we discussed in past weeks, Paul quoted this verse earlier, Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. That's all in Genesis 15. Then Genesis 16 comes along, only one chapter, but many, a number of years later, and things go off the rails in the life of Abraham because none of the promises have yet come true. And Abraham is getting older and older, and his wife Sarah is quite old. She's beyond childbearing years, but God has given them this promise of children, so what are they going to do? Do they keep waiting? Well, they hatch a plan. They said, well, instead of Sarah bearing children, uh, perhaps Abraham could get an heir by impregnating his slave Hagar. And the idea is basically, I'll take her as a concubine, but that any children born to her would kind of belong to the family. The language of Genesis 16 is actually Sarah saying that she, Sarah, will be built up through Hagar. That sounds terrible. And it is terrible. And we are reminded that essentially Hagar has no say in this. And all of the scriptures, the taking of a second wife... Or the having of sexual relations outside of your spouse, even if they are even if they are a consenting adult, which is not clear at all in this case, is forbidden. Now, predictably, this plan that Sarah and Abraham hatch together ends in disaster. Now, the passage. Now, what's tricky here, though, is that the passage in Galatians holds Hagar and her son Ishmael up as the negative example. But that's not a comment on Hagar as a person. It's not a comment on her role in Genesis. Genesis 16, actually a few chapters later, we actually see God speaking to Hagar, caring for her. God promises her an inheritance of her own. But for the purposes of Paul's argument, she features, because of Abraham, as the negative example. Now back in Genesis 16, what happens? They they hatch this plan. Well, Abraham and Hagar, they do indeed conceive. Nine months later, a child, a son, Ishmael, is born. So this baby boy is born in what we might just call the natural way. Hagar was young, fertile. It seemed easy for her to conceive. 
but it was not what God intended. That was not his plan, not the way he intended to give an heir to Abraham. He was going to give Abraham an heir by the promise in a supernatural way that old barren Sarah, she would be miraculously able to conceive and she would eventually bear a son named Isaac. The way God intended to save the world and to perpetuate the covenant was through the promise Abraham tries to sort of take the promise by sleeping with Hagar instead of receiving the promise through Sarah. And if you look at verses 22, 23 of our text, you can see Paul summarizing this story for the Galatians. He's like, Abraham had two sons, one born of the slave woman, Hagar, one born of the free woman, Sarah. Verse 23, the son of the slave woman born according to the flesh, like through the natural means, no miracle needed, regular conception and everything. But still in verse 23, the son of the free woman, Sarah, born through the promise, aka born miraculously, born by a work of God. Now, why is Paul telling this story? You're like, this seems a little obscure. Well, maybe your, your spidey senses are tingling. Maybe you followed the arguments of Galatians. Maybe you've already sensed that Hagar and Sarah, they are going to be stand-ins. They're going to be examples, symbols for the way people approach God. That some people, Abraham and, and Hagar, they try to force their way to God through their own effort, whereas the Christian gospel is the reception of the gift of God through the promise, Sarah. And specifically, when we look at Hagar and Sarah, we see another additional wrinkle, that the most able, in quotes, among us, are often excluded from the kingdom of God because we think we can get there on our own, whereas those of us who know we are barren, that know that we can't do it on our own, are often the ones invited. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to draw lines uh, in this story from Hagar toward the law, toward the Judaizers, and while drawing a different line from Sarah through the promise to the gospel to the new Jerusalem above. But that's the historical context, okay? One woman, Hagar, bearing a child in the ordinary way. A second woman, Sarah, bearing a child according to the promise, receiving the gift. But that leads us to the allegorical, part two. We have this story But then Paul says, I think somewhat unexpectedly, he says, well, you can interpret this story allegorically. Now, what does that mean? What does allegorical interpretation mean? Well, the tricky part, for those of us who like the Bible, is that this is the only time the word allegory or allegorical is used. So we're like, well, we don't have another passage to go compare to. Like, how is it used over here and kind of bring it over? And so we're kind of forced to look outside the scriptures a little bit. But it essentially means to interpret symbolically or to interpret by means of analogy. That is, the characters, the settings, the, the, the sort of the things of a story represent other things. Now, I'll give you an example, except I used things a couple times there. Uh, I came across a modern preacher from an evangelical denomination, and, and he used the following allegorical approach in a sermon on Genesis 1. Genesis 1, the creation account, God creating the world. Here is a summary of what he said. Genesis 1, pastor said, well, Genesis 1 is not just a description of physical creation, which I think this pastor would obviously believe it is. He says it's a picture of what happens when a person comes to faith in Jesus. So when the earth is being described as being void, formless, uh, and in darkness, well, that's a a symbol for our, our spiritual state before salvation. When the Holy Spirit moves over the waters of the deep in Genesis 1, well, that's the Holy Spirit working on the hearts of a human. 
When God commands the light to shine in darkness, you know, the, the first day or whatever, that's the moment that symbolizes the moment of salvation. The greater and lesser lights, the sun and the moon created on the fourth day, that represents the two ways we come to know truth, whether directly through God, the greater light, or through the church, the lesser light. And it kind of goes on like this. This pastor, kind of working allegorically, sees all the things in the creation account as representing other things. Does that make sense? And to be fair to this preacher, and I don't know him personally, so you don't need to go wondering, oh, which preacher in Ottawa is doing this? Not in Ottawa, but many of the church fathers, they taught like this all the time. Augustine, Origen, a whole bunch of them, they loved the allegorical approach. They wrote books and books on it. Everything, or many, many things, symbolized other things. Many of you are also likely with, uh, or likely familiar with John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. It's called an allegory for the Christian life. He falls asleep in like the very first lines, like, and I dreamed a dream, and you know, it kind of goes on, and the protagonist named Christian uh, goes to Doubting Castle, and he has all these adventures, but all the things symbolize other things. Now, here's the danger with a pastor, a theologian, employing the allegorical approach. There's not much seatbelt. There's not much seatbelt to it. Who's to say where we draw lines and, and what is far enough? Like what's, okay, that's, that's good. And what's too far? If everything symbolizes something else, is there any limit to what can be symbolized? For instance, does the earth being formless and void, Genesis 1, does that represent a human heart before Christ? That's pretty reasonable. Or does it represent like the Russian government? Or does it represent Mars before we colonize it? Like how do we know where, where, where the lines are? How do we know how far we're allowed to go? And to our point today, how do we know what Hagar and Sarah represent? Maybe Hagar represents a church cast out by its denomination. How are we supposed to know? Maybe Sarah represents an old person who miraculously becomes president. You know, who, who are we to say that this is where symbolism, this is where analogy, allegory stops? And this is why, in our particular church tradition, we favor what we would call a somewhat literal approach to the scriptures while considering its genre and its context. That we would just argue the first and most important meaning of the text is, like, what does it say and who is it being said to that doesn't mean other types of interpretation are wrong. They just, have to, they just come later. What a text meant to its original hearers, that is the most important meaning. Allegory then comes later. And it's really, it's best used when the scriptures demand it should be used. Like a parable, that's an allegory. Jesus' parable of seeds being scattered into four kinds of soil. If you know it, the seed stands for the word of God. The soil stands for different kinds of hearts of humans. How do we know that? Because Jesus said, this is what the soil is. This is what, this, this is what the, the seed is. Here's, here's how it all works. And in a similar way, getting back to today's text, how do we know Hagar stands for one way of approaching God while Sarah stands for another? simply because that's what Paul says it means. Under the, under the influence, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, it's what he tells us. See, we have to be cautious if and when we employ allegory. We either need a tight seatbelt or we need an open hand to acknowledge it's pretty easy to get wrong. Now, that's a long preamble to allegory, but because it's only used once in the New Testament, that's like my one shot to talk about it. Uh, and so, uh, and I think it is important because if you do read old theologians, you will find uh, these kinds of interpretations around. But let's get to what Paul says. Middle of verse 24, he tells us, what do the women mean? The women are two covenants. 
Hagar and Sarah, they each symbolize a covenant. Now a covenant is a, a holy promise with curses and blessings can be understood. This is a way of approaching God. This is a way of trying to be or being in relationship with God. The first covenant is from Mount Sinai. Again, these are all these illusions. What does Mount Sinai represent? It's where the law was given to Israel. Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets the law from God. He passes it to the people. So therefore, the first covenant is the law. And Paul says it bears children for slavery. It's Hagar. Just like Hagar in sort of the real world bore Ishmael into slavery, the only children the law can bear are also slaves. A slave cannot give birth to a free child. All the law can do is enslave us. All it can do is put us to work. All it can do is say, try really, really hard to please God, get on the treadmill, do more and more. That's all the law can do. It's what Paul is arguing. And he kind of summarizes in verse 25, Hagar is Mount Sinai. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, which, says, which is to say she corresponds to these Judaizers who are declaring justification. Salvation is through the law. So Sinai plus present Jerusalem plus Hagar plus Judaizers, they are all on a team. They're all over here. They all symbolize or represent the same thing, self-salvation by works, okay? On the other hand, Sarah stands for the other covenant, not a covenant of works, a covenant of grace and the promise. If you look at verse 26, Paul says, Sarah stands for the Jerusalem above, that's representative of the place where God dwells, and that she, Sarah, is the mother of all who believe the gospel. So in contrast to Sinai, present Jerusalem, Hagar, Judaizers, the other team is Sarah, the promise, the gospel, the new Jerusalem, symbolic of salvation by faith through grace. And then as if to prove his point, or to, and to prove his point, Paul dips into the prophet Isaiah. This is a quote from Isaiah 54.1, where Isaiah foretells, the children of the barren one, Sarah, they're going to be more numerous than the children of the woman who has a husband, Hagar. See, humanly speaking, if, if Sarah and Hagar were standing in front of you, and you were asked, which of these two is going to have more children and more descendants? Well, if all you had was, was looks, you'd choose Hagar. She's young, presumably fertile. This, this woman, Sarah, she's old. She appears to be beyond childbearing years. But God, through Isaiah, will upend expectations. Both will actually have physical descendants. But spiritually speaking, it's through Sarah's line that the promise of the gospel will come. Her spiritual descendants, which include Christians, are beyond number. It's again God telling us something kind of counterintuitive. He's going to save the world through the barren person, not the fertile one. Those who believe themselves able to get to God on their own, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is only those who realize they need help. So allegorically speaking, two mothers, two covenants, two ways of approaching God. Are you tracking so far? Part three, the practical. If you look at verse 28, Paul sort of turns his attention from this theological history lesson to the current plight of the Galatians. Now then, ah, alas, okay, what does this mean, Paul? What are we supposed to do? Now then, he reminds them, you are born of Sarah's line, you're born of Isaac, you're children of the promise, and he gives them two applications for what they should do with this reminder that they are born of Sarah, not Hagar. First, he says, they should be reminded they will experience persecution, that's the word he uses, from those who insist upon the law as a means of justification. Now, going back to the story, if you read on from Genesis 16 and the, the four or five chapters that follow, there are run-ins between Hagar and Sarah. There's friction and infighting and jealousy and mockery. The women really battle for supremacy in the family. 
And Genesis doesn't say it explicitly, but we can pretty safely assume the friction between the mothers was beginning to bleed over into their sons. And because Ishmael was older, you know, probably stronger, you know, whatever, a little more grown up, it's likely, or at least Paul says here, that he persecuted Isaac. There was persecution from the one born of the flesh toward the one born of the spirit and the promise. So what Paul is saying is, in the same way, those who pursue justification through the law, self-salvation, children of the flesh, they will continue persecuting the children of the promise. In other words, Galatians, don't be surprised if the Judaizers give you a hard time. Don't be surprised if they're kind of after you. And to all of us today who are trying to live as children of the promise, don't be surprised if the world thinks you're crazy. We shouldn't be shocked if the free offer of the gospel is mocked or ridiculed. If everyone is on a self-salvation project, then of course the way of the gospel is going to seem outrageous. There will be persecution from the old Jerusalem toward the new Jerusalem. Paul reminds them of this. The second practical application for the Galatians, and it sounds harsh, but let me try to explain it. He says, cast out the slave woman and her son. Now, that doesn't sound like a practical application. (laughs) Like, we don't have slaves anymore. What are we supposed to do with this? Um, Hagar, Ishmael, long gone by the time the Galatians came around. But remember, Paul is working allegorically. Here is the quote from Genesis 21. Sarah speaks this line in Genesis 21. Sarah wanted Hagar and Ishmael to leave the household. And, and she said, so that Isaac's inheritance would not be threatened. So if we're working allegorically, then we're not talking about throwing slaves out of our households. Uh, Paul is telling them, you have to remove any trace of the old covenant. That's about the law keeping Old Testament Judaizing things. Cast out the slave woman and her son means a refusal to to walk with and participate in that covenant. There should be no room for that way of approaching God in the church. It's it's just simply not Christian. It's a different faith and belief system. But I think that means there are two ways we can take Paul's command. First, it does mean resisting the influence of biblical legalism in our churches. I have no doubt that Paul intends for the Galatians to actually remove the Judaizers from their church context, tell them to go away. Paul doesn't want them running around, kind of messing things up, uh, ruining the inheritance of the true children of the promise. And I think for us, we ought to have the utmost grace and patience. If you are exploring uh, the Christian faith, if that's you here this morning, you're like, I'm not sure, I'm just kind of investigating, you are absolutely welcome. We love that you're here. Ask your questions, have all the space you need to figure things out. Two thumbs up, we are glad about it. But at the same time, we are on our guard for teaching and teachers that insist, well, if you want to be a true Christian, you need more than the gospel. There's not not supposed to be any space in Christian churches for those who are saying, well, we have to go beyond Christ if we want salvation. Paul is saying, we got to get that out of here. We got to cast it out, remove it, so that the gospel way can shine forth at full brightness. And we can just stand together and insist, this is how you become a Christian. That's all you need. But there's more. I think Paul also intends for us to cast the slave woman and her son out of our own hearts which is actually a lot harder. <laughs> it's a lot more insidious. It's a lot more dangerous. It's, it's somewhat difficult to detect external threats in the church. It's extremely difficult to detect internal threats in our own hearts and our own souls because everything we do seems right to ourselves. We're all wise in our own eyes. 
And we're all prone to returning to some form of self-salvation project. So we must be on the watch, careful for the biblical legalism that's going to arise in our own hearts, first and foremost. See, I began today by telling you that the appropriate question for this text is not, who's your daddy, but who is your mother? And so what I want to offer you in my, again, hopefully entitled fourth section, a helpful summary, is I want to offer you a grid for evaluating yourself taking stock of where you are at, because I don't think it's always easy to know where you are at. And I offer you by way of self-reflection. This isn't a grid that you get to hold up to someone else and be like, look, I think they're like an A plus or a C minus or whatever. I'm just, I'm offering it to you for you to self-reflect on it. Um, and and we'll, we'll do that. I, I borrowed it in part, I've, I've changed it some, but I borrowed it in part from Tim Keller's commentary on Galatians. So if you ever happen to pick it up, you'll see hints of that in there. But I'm gonna offer you four kinds of people when it comes to the law of God and the gospel. Okay, so type one, as I'm calling, law obeying and law relying. Law obeying and law relying. This, type of per, this first type of person obeys the moral law. They're doing their very best to keep the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount. They're trying to be upright and good. Uh, they obey the law, but they also rely on the law, which is to say they depend on it for salvation. And the Judaizers, these people we've been talking about, they mainly fit this category. Now, how can you tell if you're a type one person? Law obeying, law relying, that tends to make a person smug and self-righteous. They tend to feel superior to others. They easily look down on others because they aren't doing as well as them. But often these people are actually secretly insecure because ultimately type one is about performance. And the moral law is so extremely demanding that we never quite measure up. But a type one person is law obeying and law relying. Type two, law disobeying, law relying. Person in this category would believe in moral laws, think they are important, say, yep, that's good, I'm glad we have those. But for some reason, usually just something particular to their life, they are unwilling to keep it. And this type of person generally has very low spiritual self-esteem, They're often guilt-ridden because they say, I know the law is good. I I know that God gave it to us, but I cannot and will not live by it. Lots of ex-church people fit this category, but also some church people. Type two, people are more humble than type one because they don't feel better than anyone else. They're ridden with guilt, but they remain in sort of negative cycles of guilt and frustration and not sure how to move forwards. Okay, type three, Law disobeying, law not relying, okay? Law disobeying, law not relying. This type of person is your classic irreligious Canadian. They do not obey or, 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 or rely on the moral law. They're pretty relativistic. They would have very much a you-do-you approach to life. They generally choose their own moral standards and are, and are tolerant, and they often say, you know, you, you can choose yours, I'll choose mine. These people generally come across as, as happy and tolerant, But there also tends to be an undercurrent of self-righteousness because they have earned their happiness through their own choices and they cannot understand why you would not do the same. There's a bit of a subtle superiority to the way they talk and think. And of course, I would argue, based on Romans 1 and other texts, that there's a sense that they know there is a God. They know some sort of uh, transcendent law exists, but they have pushed away that knowledge. Law disobeying, law not relying. And the type 4 person is a law obeying, not law relying, which is where a Christian ought to land, 
Because we would say, well, what I've been trying to say this morning, we do not rely on the law for salvation. That is accomplished through Christ in the gospel. Yet in the freedom of a Christian, they serve God out of grateful joy. The law is a guide. The law shows them Christ. The law gives them wisdom about life. But they are not owned by it. They are not dominated by it. A Christian who can obey the law but not rely on the law should be more sympathetic and compassionate than a type 1 person. They should be more confident and bold than a type two person. They should be more tolerant and understanding than a type three person. If the gospel is for all of us who are barren failures yet by grace have been saved by the promise, it can change how we view the rest of the world. But as Christians, if you are a Christian, we often find ourselves slipping back into one of the first three mindsets. If you find yourself regularly struggling with being smug and self-righteous, unable to sympathize or have compassion for the sins of others, you may be slipping back into type one. If you find yourself ridden with guilt, unable to make spiritual progress, you may be slipping back to type two. If you find yourself, you're just, I'm just looking down on others. I have a sense of superiority. I want to make my own laws and live by them. You may be slipping back into type three. When Paul tells us, cast out the slave woman and her son, what we find is that their thoughts, desires, and attitudes are really deeply embedded into our hearts and minds. It's not as easy as it sounds. And the casting out cannot just happen once, but must happen daily. Martin Luther famously wrote in his first thesis that he nailed onto that door, all of Christian life is repentance. All of it, (laughs) every day, all of it. And so I would just simply urge all of us on the basis of this text to go on repenting. Go on getting back into type four. Go on saying no to these other things. Maybe it's the first time today. Maybe it's the hundredth time. Understanding if you are a Christian, you are not a child of the slave slave woman, but the free woman. And as Paul says, as he begins the next chapter, we'll get to it next week, Christ has made us free. Now go live in light of that freedom. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. And we are grateful that even in these old stories, you've embedded such deep truth, ways for us to see ourselves, ways for us to understand ourselves. Please shed the light of your Holy Spirit on these scriptures and in our hearts that we might not just see the scriptures, but see ourselves rightly and see what you've done for us. Remind us of the freedom purchased for us. Remind us of what it means to live as children of the free woman. Please help us. In Christ's name, amen.